Pachango. Hey, all you tangentialers out there. My name is Christian, and today I'm speaking to you from the United States in the state of Indiana, um, currently in Brown County, just outside of Bloomington, treating some properties. I'm the field operations manager for a pest control franchise based in central Indiana, a rather conservative choice of occupation compared to many of the other listeners of this podcast, from what I understand. Nonetheless, I'm here today to um, share some really good news with you, Chris. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I start college. I'm 22 years old, and uh, after high school, I really took the time to uh, double down on uh, finding out what interests me, what makes me tick, experimenting with my own intricacies and my individualism, and you know, just finding out what I like and, more importantly, what I don't like, what I don't want to do. Um, I'm going for agricultural studies with a focus on controlled environmental systems, and I'm going to use this degree to get into the cannabis industry. Um, been a stoner since high school, and for me, it was a gateway to a better life as I got older. You know, I was more interested in its uh, recreational applications when I was younger, but now I've, I've come to really appreciate and fathom its environmental and ecological applications when it comes to growing sustainably. And um, I really attribute this uh, bold and unrelenting ambition to, pers to pursue a fulfilling life, doing what I want to do to people like you who have uh, really nurtured that trait. Um, you know, I know authenticity is a huge part of what, of what you stand for. And uh, I really, really wanted to extend my gratitude to you. I mean, you were in my ear um, so many years in high school and, you know, even today, uh, offering me guidance and wisdom, insight, and sharing wonderful experiences that have just really not only been captivating, but also insightful and very helpful. And um, I'm so appreciative of that to have had you at very critical and developmental points of my life uh, as, a, as a friend and a companion. It really means so much to me and so many other people across the globe. And I just really wanted to let you know that you are loved and you are valued, man. Um, Really, I just want to say to anyone else that's listening that um, whatever it is that you're looking for to help you feel fulfilled and whole, I hope you find it because you fucking deserve it. Life is too damn short to be miserable. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? It is. Um, and speaking of uh, the sort of other aspects of hemp, I'm I'm the same. I was I got high quite a bit in uh, college, not so much in high school. I didn't really get into it until I went to Hobart College in upstate New York, which is probably one of the best places, or was in 1980, one of the best places in the world to acquire high-quality cannabis. It's back, back in the days when it was illegal unless you were white and came from a wealthy family and were going to a private college in upstate New York, in which case it was pretty much legal. I never knew anyone who got busted for weed uh, in that context anyway. Um, this episode is the second in the mentorship series with someone we're calling Nathan. Uh, we figure we'd do three of these. This one is primarily about relationships. Nathan is, uh, I think he said eight months into a relationship with a woman and they're thinking very seriously about 
questions like more um, monogamy, I almost said morality, which I guess that's part of it. Uh, monogamy, having kids, you know, the implications for family, community, what's it mean if you structure your relationship in a in a way that's different from how most people structure relationships? Does that then expel you from the community of monogamists? <laughs> it does. To a large extent, it does. Uh, at least based on my experience. Maybe if you write a book about it, maybe if you're public about it, uh, that's the problem, not the, uh, the unusual configuration itself. In any case, it's, uh, it's, I, I really enjoy chatting with this guy. He's super smart and, um, you know, he, he, he pushes back. Um, he, he's not just like an acolyte sitting there thinking that whatever I say is necessarily true. Um, it's just my opinion. It's my, you know, my experience. Um, you know, but that obviously is very individual and not necessarily applicable to everyone's situation. So that's always interesting to sort of find the areas where, you know, he's dealing with pressures that maybe I didn't deal with, whether it's because, um, differences in our family, differences in the era, uh, in which we were a certain age, you know, all sorts of circumstantial influences on these decisions. So that's what this episode is. Um, as I did last time, as I'll do for this entire series, the first hour or so uh, goes out to everybody who listens to the podcast. And the second hour, the, the full thing is available for paid subscribers. So if you get uh, to the end of the first half and you're like, fuck, this is just getting interesting. For the low, low price of $5 a month, you can listen to the rest of it and everything else. Um, and there's also, I think, a seven-day free trial. So you can just sign up for the trial and listen to it and then cancel it. Um, if if you don't think it's worth the money, you can sort of cut the corner. So, all right. Without further ado, I will uh, just launch right into this. And also, I'm I'm restricting music to the paid version because the only place I run into issues with the music is Spotify and they don't uh, pick up the paid feed. They just do the, the free feed. And so far they haven't hassled me about the uh, introductory music. So uh, the, the song I'll use on the paid version. All right. Thanks for listening to this. And let's get right into this conversation with Nathan. All right. So Nathan, here we are. Uh, Nathan 2.0. How's, how have you been doing? It's been what a month since we recorded the first one of these. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a month and it's been a good month. I, I really, um, man, I, I just, I've really enjoyed listening back like, you know, three or four times to our conversation and seeing the comments from Substack is just so positive and hearing you talking about the, the possibility of doing this with other people potentially. Um, I just, it's been such a positive force in my life and otherwise it's been, you know, it's been good. I've been, uh, it's spring in, in New York and it's like maybe the best time of year here. And I've been camping and parents visiting and not working too hard and life is, life is good. Yeah. Great. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 response was very positive. I 
I was uh, fearing the worst, uh, you know, that it would just be too too guruish or something, if that's a word. Guruish. It should be a word if it's not already. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, people seem seem to dig it, and and they they really appreciated your intelligence and uh, you know and and the way you came at this. So, congratulations for that. You're a good. Uh, you're a good questioner. Oh, well, thank you. That that means the world. Yeah, coming from you and your audience. So I, I appreciate it. I have uh, yet another just big list of, of questions. But but before diving in, how, how have you been? How's how's Creston? How's the month been? Oh, it's awesome. It's great. The, the weather's beautiful. The, I mean, this is a really beautiful place. You know, we, we got this little house and Probably my favorite part of the house is this weird deck that the guy built um, off the back. I say weird because it's not connected to the house. So when you walk out there, it's sort of, you know, like you're in a tree house or something. Uh Um, You know, we may die out there one of these days. But in the meantime, it's got an incredible view. And so you can just look out over this valley and see rain over there and dust devils over here and big purple clouds coming over the mountains and the San Juan peaks 50 miles to the west. And if you turn around, the Sangre de Cristos are, you know, half a mile to the east, 14,000 foot, still snow and, you know, sort of not glaciers because they're not there all year, but, you know, sort of uh, ice rivers coming down the side of the mountain and yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. So I, I love that stuff. I like weather. Uh, you know, yeah. I get frustrated if I live in a place where there's not change. Yeah. You know, like L.A. is great, but like eh, it's every day is the same. I like storms and I, I like shit to hit the fan as far as weather goes. It feels humbling in a in a refreshing kind of way Uh uh a reminder that all our little bullshit is happening in the context of massive indifferent natural events yeah yeah i feel i feel that whenever i look into the ocean like whenever i'm at a Mm. the ocean and i can see right i can't see the end of of the water there's something like there's something really existential about it like it makes me just start to think thoughts like how am I doing in life these days? You know, it's like, it's very like, you know, you're a, you're a, a, a teeny tiny speck in infinite yeah, space. Yeah. I get, I got that in Spain. I miss that uh, living in the States. I in, in the States, I get it in the natural world, uh, that sort of shift of perspective. But in Spain, I also got it just walking down a street and, I'm thinking, you know, people walked down the street 500 years ago, you know, mm-hmm. like on these same stones, mm-hmm. you know, where I remember one time I was sitting in the, in a bar in Barcelona talking with some friends and, and I looked at my friend, he was leaning against the wall and I, I, I noticed how big the, the stone block was. And then I realized, oh, that's the Roman wall. This bar is built against the wall that the Romans built around the original settlement of Barcelo, 
which was like a little, you know, trading post or something along the Mediterranean. And he's leaning against it while he's drinking this beer. It's like, uh, wow. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it. it's interesting how things that can make us feel insignificant can also be comforting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that is like, like, what do you think it is? I mean, you would think it would be the exact opposite. Like you, right. Why do you think it's comforting? It is kind of counterintuitive. I think it's comforting because on some level we know we don't matter. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and yet uh, it seems like the circumstances of our lives conspire to convince us that we and our problems and our little, our issues and our struggles and are so important and we get caught up in that. And yet it all happens in the context of subconsciously knowing we don't matter, knowing we're going to die, knowing this is all just a, you know, just an instant. Yeah. And I don't know, for some reason it reminds me of, of uh it's a weird connection but it reminds me of one time i was uh maybe you know 11 or 12 or something and i was having a struggle with my mother <clears throat> which went on for quite a while and my dad would sort of find himself caught in the middle of this personality struggle because my mother and i are very very different and as i was sort of coming into figuring out who i was there was a lot of um, dispute with her and the way she wanted to like run her house. And I was like, but I live here, so I get to have it my way to, you know, and there was all that. Anyway, I just remember my dad came home from work and it was like, oh shit, here we go. Another one of these, you know, I'm stuck in the middle of this fight that's been going on all day. And I, I just remember him saying to me, um, Chris, you know, I love you. I'll always love you but I love your mom more. Mm. Like I loved your mom before you existed. So you need to understand you're not going to turn me against her. Right? Like, and, and the reason I'm reminded of that is that that seems like the kind of thing that should have made me feel bad, but it was comforting. Mm. So I think it's the same as like, you know, the natural world or, you know, a, a thousand year old city reducing you, like putting you in your place, I guess, is the feeling. Yeah. And there's part of you that's like, good, I should be in my place. Thanks for putting me here. Yeah. Thanks for setting the context. Yeah. Um, because, you know, in, in the case of the conversation with my dad, the feeling was like, I felt safe. Like, oh, they're not going to get divorced. They're, even I can't fuck up their marriage. That's how solid it is. So I'm safe in that. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. And I feel like we need that as people. We need to have, we need to be put in our place. We need to be humbled. We need to be reminded, like, okay, all your fucking drama really doesn't fucking matter. Mm -hmm. So there, there's something liberating about that, right? Like, ah, I can... I can fuck it up. And like I, I, I mentioned this in the last podcast intro, I have a, a friend who was going through some, some rough shit and, and he was like, 
depressed because he's like, I'll never be incredible. And my advice to him was, don't worry about being incredible. Worry about being credible. Yeah. Right? Don't don't worry about being great. Worry about being good. That other shit takes care of itself. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. It's uh like I, I read a quote, it's kind of the the opposite of that, but I read this quote recently that was like, it's not it's not mountains that that you know inhibit people. It's blisters. You know, so like if you're hiking, right. it's not the it's not the mountain, it's the blister. It's like these little just try to try to not have blisters for a while. Um, right. But that I like this idea of of being put in your place because it makes me think. I mean, it makes me kind of think. What is what does that mean? Like, what is your place that you're being put in? And my where my mind goes is kind of it's whatever it is. It's quiet there. It's simple hmm. and it's quiet and it's like you know. Uh, like I feel like when you lean on a, a rock wall and realize how how old it is and how you're just a part of a of of you know a tiny part of time, or when you gaze out into a thunderstorm and realize, you know, that that you're just a being on a humongous planet, it's like it's it's just your mind quiets. The chatter in your head stops being as important as as salient and it like it's just and and this this reminds me of of you know one of the things i I wanted to ask you i mean i I, which is i'm curious you know everyone has a voice in their head kind of you know to some extent you can you can you know like if you wanted to make yourself scream just ah but like in your head you can do that it's you know there's sometimes that interrupts you when you're trying to think and sometimes you know you can't it it it's keep saying something over and over again and you can't get it to shut up what is your relationship like with the voice in your head currently <laughs> uh uh i i've never felt um intruded upon by the voice or voices in my head i think uh in the sense that they're alien or or hostile in any way um i gather that that a lot of people have voices in their heads that are insulting and hostile and degrading and belittling and you know all that and i guess those would be the voices of our parents maybe or you know early sort of pre-conscious awareness of other people's judgment of us mm-hmm. um my parents were were lovely people and and in, the, in my mom's case she's still alive she is a lovely person but um you know flawed and and all that like everyone else but they never um m- they never gave me any cause to question whether I was loved and welcomed and, mm-hmm. you know, all that. So I guess maybe that's why the voice or voices in my head are, are fine. They're, I mean, I feel like they're, they're me. They're not, they're not alien yeah. in any way. Yeah. It, I mean, I do remember, so, oh, sorry. 
as far as voices go, I I do remember, and maybe I've, I'm sure I've told this story on at least a couple of the 560 episodes of the podcast, but um, I remember when I, when the voice appeared mm. for the first time uh, as a voice speaking words. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of meta memory because what I remember is <clears throat> as a kid, you know, I was a very kind of like uh mystical kid, like psychic things predict. I, I knew things were happening before they happened. I, I, I remember doing this thing where with a friend where <clears throat> I was with a few friends and, and I knew what card they were going to turn over. And then I just say, Oh, it's going to be nine of, clubs and they turn it over it was nine of clubs and everyone was like whoa that's crazy what's the next one in two of hearts and it was the two of hearts and i think i did like nine before i got one wrong and and this wasn't was a trick like, this was just a you just no it was just a feeling i just what? knew I, I i just felt it yeah i had a lot of shit like that when i was a kid i yeah i had several psychic either premonitions that happened in dreams or, or thing like I knew, I just told Rick the story that he, yesterday or the day before about um, like when my grandmother died, I was eight and I knew, I knew exactly when she died. I felt it. And I was like, I didn't even know she was sick really. I didn't know what was going on, but anyway, I, I, I had this sort of like, very um porous consciousness where things flowed in and out and uh i remember having i sort of um getting the idea that people were afraid to die and maybe this was you know around my grandmother's death or whatever that was the first death situation i i really understood at all. And anyway, I, I got this feeling like people were afraid to die. And I remember feeling like, oh, there's, there's no reason to be afraid to die. I remember before I was alive, it was great. It was fine. And, and I'd, I'm not afraid to die. And then as I got a little older, I'm talking 9, 10, 11, 12 in there, um, I started to feel my inner consciousness shifting from this sort of amorphous, undefined, just flow of feeling and memory and, and, and sensation into a more sort of linear verbal mm -hmm. voice mm -hmm. in my head. Right because I was becoming more verbal. I was reading more. I was thinking about words more and my consciousness was shifting into a, an articulated verbal kind of event. And I remember thinking, oh, as this process happens, that memory of pre-birth is fading because it's not a memory that can, that, 
that exists in words, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm losing my connection to that memory. And that memory is going to be very important for me as I get older. I need to hold on to it somehow. And so it was like I planted a flag. Like I, it's like I took a photograph of something, of, of, a, of an iceberg that was melting so that I would remember the iceberg from the photograph, even though the iceberg was gone. I couldn't access the actual iceberg anymore, but because I realized, oh shit, this is melting. This is going away. I need to preserve it in this new consciousness that's developing, right? So I, I, I made a real effort to like, you must remember this. You must remember this feeling, even though you can't access the feeling as you get older. So I'm that, so maybe 13, 14 or something is when <clears throat> I, I feel like that's when my consciousness became verbal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting. I have so, so many thoughts there. I mean, you know, I, I guess one is, do you still remember that? And do you, do you still pull from that flag that you planted in, in some way? Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember the effort to remember, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and and it's hard to say to what extent my memory of the feeling is a direct memory of the feeling or it's a memory of choosing to remember a feeling. Yeah. You know, it's it's like when... You know, you've heard a story about what you said when you were four years old and you did this funny thing and you've heard your parents tell the story a million times. At some point, you feel like you remember it, but maybe you yeah. don't. Maybe you just remember the story, you know? Yeah, yeah. How much it's, of a mind fuck is that? Like, I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with those experiments where they can they got people to think that they got lost at a shopping mall. And it like just right. didn't happen and they could just rely Implanted on memory. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Well, so, uh, another question. All, the, all those oh, kids who, who remembered their grandfather sexually abusing them and it never fucking happened. Yeah. You know, it's just a therapist who said, you know, I think your grandfather touched you. Right. You remember? It's like, yeah. poor grandfather's yeah. in prison. He, he didn't do anything. Yeah. It's yeah. It's wild. Memory is a fickle thing. Um, what about so going back to the voice in your in your head question I, like so there's the the kind of like self-concept voice you are enough you are loved you are good you are bad you, but what about you know you're sitting on your porch and you just are replaying a conversation you had with your friend that didn't go well over breakfast you know, are, like, do you do you find yourself intentionally often in kind of a, you know, Buddhist or like mindfulness esque way trying to quiet your mind, or do you just kind of let it do its thing? Like, do do you feel is there are you? So many people seem like they're trying to quiet their mind, you know, and and. Are, are are you doing that intentionally in any way? Are you, you know, it, it, like, do you have a relationship with that part of the voice in your head, the voice in your head that says, you know, you, you know, you, that's planning what you need to do later or like trying to solve some problem mm -hmm. that doesn't exist yet? 
Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes, like, especially, you know, I guess the time I would notice it most is trying to fall asleep and, and it's just like going over something mm-hmm. obsessively. And and then there, you know, I, I have techniques to uh, to quiet it or to distract myself. I mean, to be honest, a, a lot of my life, the main technique would have been to think about sex. Mm-hmm. You know, I would to to just just because it always worked it's like whatever uh, is going on in my head if i think about a woman that that i was into or a situation that was intriguing that would my my brain is like a dog it's just like hey over here there's some a treat and i was like oh yeah i forget whatever i was tearing up in the yard or whatever you know interesting, uh, interesting. yeah yeah. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast as well. I mean, that's part of the reason that I have always had an issue with the, this sort of conventional Buddhist idea that desire is an enemy to be, uh, you know, to be um, avoided because for me, desire has been an ally. It's, it's helped me mm-hmm. sort of pull my mind away from, you know, something that that could have been destructive or or um you know just uh a waste of time uh and it's it's easy to distract myself with that but um yeah i i guess when i was younger that was more of an issue i i feel like at this point in my life a lot of that sort of um the things that result from excess energy have just naturally melted away. Mm. Uh, And that's, I think that's one of the things that people in their sixties and older will often uh, celebrate is like, wow, it's so nice to not have to deal with all that shit, you know, all that like constant horniness or anxiety about the future or, you know, self-questioning, like I've been reading some journals that I found recently from the eighties when I was in my twenties, mid twenties. And I, I was shocked at how neurotic I sound, you know, like, just like, Oh, is this going to work? And Oh, I need to do that. And I'm like, just like this analysis, a lot of analysis. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I remember you you mentioned this recently. Um, I I don't remember what I think it was maybe in an intro or something. And in my understanding, what one of the kind of takeaways, one of the things you said about it was, you know, uh, it'll be okay. Like just Mm. it'll be okay. Yeah. And and you know that there's that's reassuring, but you know to be honest with you, that part of me went like, okay, yeah, that's true. But like, should I worry? Should is so, so is this good? Like, is this, is this right? You know, so do I try to stop this stuff or do I not, you know, is, is this? An, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, look, we're circling back to where we started, right? Like it'll be okay because it's all happening within a context where nothing fucking matters anyway, mm-hmm. right? The storm that's coming across the valley doesn't give a shit whether I'm feeling good or bad or 
if I'm about to die or if I'm at the beginning of my life or if I'm in love or, or my girlfriend up and left me or like all that stuff ultimately doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Right. So interesting. Um, and maybe gaining wisdom, getting older kind of is realizing at some deep core level that just all the stuff you think is important really isn't. And it isn't, but that, that doesn't mean you shouldn't engage with it. Yeah. Right. That doesn't mean for the 25 year old guy that I was, <clears throat> that those weren't urgent questions that needed to be chewed on and thought about and written about and, you know, whatever it was that I was, however I was engaging with them. Yeah. It's, it's weird because on the one side you're saying, you know, to the, this young person, Hey, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. But that doesn't mean don't be you don't go through the process Mm -hmm. of getting to the place where everything's fine. You're still going to go through that process. Right. So, but that's the weird thing about being older and trying to to help people who are younger. Like a lot of what you're you're trying to impart to them is true, but it's also irrelevant uh-huh. because they need to go through what they need to go through. Right. You know. So I think there there are <clears throat> maybe you know nuggets of useful more than information it's more like a way to think about things that can be useful to people but how they use those tools and and you know is totally individual so yeah, yeah there's not there's not much you can do for them there yeah it seems like one of the things in my read of you correct me if i'm wrong here one of the things that you try to do over and over again is remind people about death remind people you know at the end of every podcast you know you play the you're gonna die one day song and you know you i've heard you mention you know you wanting to keep death like close on your shoulder or i forget the exact saying there right and it seems like that that's perhaps a a shortcut you know that's perhaps what a lot of this leads to it's just like you're going to die. You're going to die. Remember that you're (laughs) going to die, you know, worry as you might grow as you might evolve as you might, but just remember you're going to die. And I wonder if you could, you know, I mean, perhaps, you know, in mentoring me or in talking to your younger self or in talking to your, you know, twenties, thirties listening audience, like, what do you feel one's relationship with death ought ought to be? Is there, if you could go back in time and tap yourself on the shoulder as a, as a 30 year old and, and tell yourself something, you know, tell yourself how to relate to death. Is there something you would say? No, I think I, I think I knew, uh, I mean, at the risk of sounding arrogant or, or whatever, or guruish, I feel like I've always known. And, you know, this gets back to that planting that flag, right? I feel like I've always known that death is something to be um, cognizant of, never be in denial of, um, but also not to be terrified by. Mm-hmm. It, it 
You know, it's like, it's useful. It's useful because it, it helps us live in the moment. It, it helps us, you know, when you're, you know, when you're, you're trying to make that decision, that, that really important decision about what your next step is in life, if you make it in the context of, you know, uh, time is melting away and once it melts, it won't come back. It flows, you know, it's that melting iceberg. It just goes and it's gone. And so there's no point in waiting. There's no point in, you know, what's that? There's a line in uh, a Red Hot Chili Pepper song. This life is more than just a read through, right? It's like, this isn't practice for life. This is it. This you're on stage. This is the show. This is not rehearsal. Yeah. Um, and the awareness of death is what gives us that understanding, right? Because as we said earlier, like everything's conspiring to tell us you're so important. Your problems are eternal. You know, light, you won't die. Everyone else dies, but not you, right? You're, you're the center of the show and the show must go on, which means you must go on. And so the more we can sort of counter that instinctive delusion of immortality, I think the more, um, you know, intelligent our decisions will be yeah. about how we live our lives. And yet, right, there's also that's within the context of it doesn't matter. So do the right thing because it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Like do be loving, be good, be kind, be generous, give. There's a Buddhist saying, what, what isn't given is lost forever, right? It's mm -hmm. like, why not do the right thing? You know what the right thing is. Why not? What are you saving it for? Like, there's, there's no part two. This is it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's so crazy how that that the thought of death is so terrifying and also so comforting at the same time. Like there's this, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Theo Katzman or like Wolfpack, this band Wolfpack. I've heard of Wolfpack. Yeah. yeah there's this, this guy, Theo Katzman from that band and he's rocks and he's, he's awesome. He has this song called a hundred years from now. And it talks about this, you know, it's kind of existential. And it, it talks about at one point, this guy went to this monastery and there was writing on the wall. And the writing said, in 100 years from now, remember all new people. And it was just like, something about that is so comforting to me. 100 years from now, all new people. None yeah. of us listening or, will be here. Or, or you see these, you know, there are these, uh, these first films from the, I don't know, early 20th century or something like I've been watching them on YouTube and it's like they mounted a camera on a on a streetcar in San Francisco and it's going down the street like Market Street in San Francisco uh -huh. and you see all these people and you know there's little kids that stop and watch it go by and it's like that kid's dead. Yeah. Like they're all dead. Yeah. Everybody's dead. Yeah. Where'd they all go? Where'd all that stuff go? Where'd all those cars go and all the streetcars and like it's amazing the churn, you know? It's just like fuck it's, it all just, it's, just a it's all just yeah. yeah 
like like soap bubbles just pop 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 they just go yeah yeah but you're right it's it's both terrifying and comforting and so i i choose to focus on the comforting as much as possible yeah you know like montaigne i don't know if you've ever read his his essays but he he's fantastic french uh considered to be the first essayist he was like the first person who wrote essays as these thought experiments and um but he talks about death and one of the points I remember from his essays is, you know, there's it, it doesn't make sense to really worry about death because what we're really worried about is dying. We're not worried about death, mm -hmm. right? It makes like death is you're you're not here to worry about it, so it's a non-issue. Yeah. And dying, you know, what an hour, a few hours, like depending how it happens. Yeah. Um, you know, this was before modern medicine drew out the process of dying, yeah. you know, into like years. Decade. Big, yeah. yeah, big thanks for that. That's progress, huh? Uh, yeah, but Montaigne's thing was like, look, you know, of the, you know, I don't remember how many hours the average person lives, but you know, a few of them, you might have some pain. Like, yeah, come on, who gives a shit? It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have one more. Like we've started so deep here. We went immediately metaphysical and now we're going to death and existential and stuff. Um, I have one more existentially question and then and then perhaps we could shift into creativity or kind of relationship y mentory stuff, if that if that sounds good to you. <laughs> All right. Ooh. Sure. This the so my my family, I'm I'm very close with my family and they they rock and we have kind of i don't for many years have circled around this question just have talked about this question a lot of he or she who dies with the most blank wins he or she who dies with the most blank wins stds <laughs> the biggest the biggest medical chart full of, of <laughs> Yeah. but i i wonder your thoughts i mean i know it's it's somewhat of a flawed question you know but but just just because it's 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 framing life as a as a competition as a finite game so to speak but mm. do you have any any blank you know things to fill in the blanks that that bubble up uh well I think, yeah, like love. I, I mean, you know, I don't know. It, it's a cliche, but ultimately loving and being loved. Uh, I don't know what's better than that. Mm -hmm. And and secondarily, I would say experience. Mm. Um. It reminds me of Hendrix. Uh, have you ever been experienced? Right, like interesting way to phrase that, and there, there's a lot of nuance in that, right? Like, are you experienced, and has anyone experienced you? Really, you? You know, 
which gets into relationship issues we can circle back to. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, I think, you know, and I think everyone's going to have their own take on this, obviously. But for me, when I was younger, I would have said experience. Like I want to go to the most countries and eat the most different kinds of food and, you know, just sort of feel jungle and desert and mountaintops and, you know, warm oceans and cold oceans. And I just want to feel it all and, and have experienced as much as possible. Um, you know, and that, that um, applied to sexuality as well. I, I, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like somebody who was, you know, notching my belt and sleeping with as many women as possible. But I definitely felt that sexuality was <clears throat> a, uh, an avenue for uh, self-exploration and exploration of other people. And it, it was like a travel adventure. It fit into that realm of my life, you know, <laughs> like I wanted to... Um, you know, experience things, although I was limited by being very heterosexual. So that was always, that's always been a conflict in my life. You know, it's like I, I said, I did an essay on Substack a while ago, things I wish I were cooler about, you know, and that was one of them. Like, I wish I were bisexual and, and we're just open to more experience in that realm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I think just, being a decent person is is really enough of an accomplishment mm -hmm. you know um that uh i don't think we should really aspire to more than that so yeah he, who has the most the most hours um appreciating the beauty of the world appreciating the beauty of the people around them appreciating the beauty of music. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, everybody in science, there's always this, this discussion around like, what is it that makes humans unique? Right. And right. some yeah. people will, you know, there've been all these different proposals, but I feel like we are, you know, homo sapiens sapiens. It's the, you know, the hominid, that knows that it knows, right? It's not just like lots of animals know, uh -huh. but they don't know they know. Uh -huh. They don't have that that meta self-reflective, you know, which is also our greatest enemy, right? Because that's the voice that you're talking about, that obsessive voice that won't shut up, mm -hmm. that's that's pulling us away from immediate experience. So all the all the different religious traditions are about <clears throat> trying to get away from that second sapiens, right? Trying to get back to be here now. Well, if you've got a dog, your dog is always being here now, right? Your cat is being here now. Like every living thing other than humans is being here now. And we're the ones who are like, but am I here now? Where am I? What's happening? Yeah, I'm in the future. I'm in the past. I'm, eh. yeah. I mean, some, you know, like my friend Stanley Krippner, one time I said to him, like, if you could sleep with any person living or dead, who would it be? And he said, oh, I never waste I never waste time thinking about things that couldn't be. So let's eliminate all the dead people. 
right? <laughs> like, I don't, he, it's just a mental discipline. Like, I don't fantasize about something that couldn't possibly happen. Huh. I, I thought, well, okay, but you're also never going to sleep with George Clooney. So, uh, you know, know. <laughs> it's an interesting place to draw the line. Yeah. It reminds me of the, um, the uh, recent podcast episode, John Colapinto, is that his name? Yeah. And yeah. talking about the the of tribe of people that like their their language doesn't even allow kind of to, to right. be outside of the present moment. There's there's no abstraction. Yeah. Have you ever read there's a book called The Spell of the Sensuous by Abram, I think is the author. It's a really interesting book. Um and he argues in that book that language itself um, is is sort of the first step away from immediate experience because, <clears throat> you know, the word apple robs us of the experience of the apple mm-hmm. because it becomes an idea and a memory and a classification, you know, like language pulls it. We, we've imbued words with these magical properties. Yes. And it's it's almost like we've drained the magic out of the material world in order to place it in the words and the language, and so we become these these people living in abstractions rather than in reality. It's really interesting, and and I mean, often I, it, was, it goes exactly opposite of like like um, you know as a as a therapist sometimes you have people experiencing panic or panic attacks or acute intense anxiety and one of the things i've i've learned and noticed is you know you think you want to just be like calm down just just you know calm down using that phrase you know calm down it's going to be okay and sometimes that can the the phrase calm down can completely backfire and it's like sure you're why would you be saying to for me to calm down other than if I'm freaking out? And so I am freaking out. And so, you know, it's just like, there's, there's, there's some, some paradox there. There's some, some, I, I think language um, is often at the root of the problem here. You know, a, a lot of this, especially a phrase like calm down, which is used to dismiss one's feelings you know, they probably their whole life, their mother's been saying, well, you just calm down. Right. You're, nah. Yeah. You know, so there's that. Yeah. 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 Which is why I, I think it's so good to to sort of bypass language when we can or just use it as a sort of a an indicator of of something physical. So instead of calm down, maybe it's take a deep breath, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or 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 notice notice your breathing. Like how quickly are you breathing? Can you feel your heart beating? Right. Like bring it down to the somatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I I think one of the great tragedies of of modernity is that therapists can't touch patients mm. because I think so much of what people need especially kids is touch Mm -hmm. is to be held you know and and 
as a therapist to, to be <clears throat> sitting in a room with a 10 year old who's in tears and you can't just reach out and, and give him or her a hug <laughs> is more, you know, it's, that's criminal. It's just like, fuck, what have we come to? Yeah. You know, when you're trying to comfort someone and you can't give them exactly what they need, it's like, you know, you got a starving person and okay, but you can't give them food. You know, you can talk to them, but don't feed them like yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I understand the reasons. I understand the abuse. I understand all that. But, um, you know, it just. It's yeah. uh, yeah, it's it's a strange situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. It's true. And so so much of the therapy, like the 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 therapeutic approaches that are increasingly kind of in vogue in my perception these days are these like somatic approaches that are body centric kind of like it seems like we're 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 you know attempting to make up for that and yeah it's it's yes touch is is incredibly um important i think and yeah it's you'll i yeah go ahead you'll you'll you know probably hate to hear this but but i like as a therapist my work is just i'm not even in the same room as people you know i'm i'm oh right um i'm not i'm not even in the same state and and you know there's there's a lot lost there it's it's useful for being a nomad and experiencing you know travel in new york and things but it's it's not the same as as yeah being in the room yeah. When Casilda and I got together, I was a massage therapist uh, in Spain and she's a psychiatrist. And we had this idea because we talked about this um, and we had this idea of setting up a a practice where, um, you know, someone would it was a package deal. So you'd come in for your therapy session, you know, therapy's four o'clock on Wednesday <laughs> But you come in at three o'clock and before your therapy, you have an hour massage with, you know, not with your therapist, with, with, a you know, someone who does massage. And then when you sit down in the office for therapy, you're relaxed. You're, you're, you know, you're in a different state because you've spent an hour being touched and your muscles being relaxed and your body being engaged and, you know. I think that you, the person would be in a much better state to open up, to overcome inhibition, to, you know, do the things that you go to therapy to try to do. And, uh, you know, and it gets around the the legal problem of a therapist touching a, a client. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it, it's additional expense, but I think therapy would go much faster and you'd make progress much, much quicker and ultimately pay less money. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know. I like it. I, uh, it's, it's crazy. You know, I, you hear stories a lot about people that, you know, they're, they're getting a massage and, you know, they're, they've been, they've had pent up grief or whatever you know and and they're just bawling on them in the massage chair. i'm sure you know miss yeah. see see a lot of that and and it's yeah there's there's something there there's something uh the body keeps yeah work, as they say as yeah yeah i as a therapist i i saw all that i saw people weeping i i had a woman have an orgasm once when i was massaging her shoulders that was interesting um, 
yeah, I, the, you know, there's there's definitely uh, a role for somatic release mm. uh, to be integrated with psychotherapy. Yeah. Anyway, we got way yeah, yeah, off yeah. the topic. <laughs> yeah. What was the topic? I forget. I don't know, but it's a good transition moment, probably. To uh, so, you know, I'm I'm really torn as to whether to go into creativity stuff right now. I have a host of questions there, or relationship stuff and i am also you know aware there's a there's a sometimes a break built in you know with with the new kind of way you're doing substack any thoughts on what would be the best turn here well you mentioned when we when we first talked about doing this you mentioned that you're in a band uh i guess you're a musician um and you're in a new relationship Yeah. yeah um so one question would be like does your girlfriend listen to this? I imagine she does. Yes. Yeah, she does. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's sort of a, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if that's a constraint on, on what can be said or, or you yeah. know, like any we, doubts you have, you're not going to really talk about, right? Well, we've, we've talked about, we've kind of had a, a couple pre conversations and I, I mean, I think there's, at least in my mind, some, some pretty clear guardrails. Like I don't want to try to, first off, I try to as best as possible communicate my feelings to her about, you know, about things like monogamy. Um, And also I, I want to try to not get in a point of, of community of speaking for her you know sure yeah but aside from that it feels feels okay to talk about and i feel frankly so grateful i mean you know so so few people get to at the beginning of a of a relationship talk to the the guy who wrote the book on this stuff you know and so <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i don't know wrote a book about part of about part stuff, of it you know yeah sure yeah yeah, yeah. all right well let's let's do that and you know, as, as much as you're, you're comfortable with it. Sure, sure. I'll tell you how cool I am though. Like uh, as a guru, yeah, yeah. I, I, I am right now trapped in my sweatpants. This is, if you've noticed me looking down and messing with something, it's because I've got these sweatpants with a drawstring and I just tried to tighten them and realized that I've like, I've got a very tight knot and I can't get it out. So I'm basically going to die in these sweatpants. Right now. <laughs> yeah. This is, this yeah. is a historic moment. This is yeah. like the, the humiliations of a 61 year old when you get <laughs> trapped in your own sweatpants. <laughs> I like how the, I like how the solution is just, I'm, I'm just going to accept it and die this way. <laughs> well, they're $10 Walmart sweatpants. So I'll just cut my way out if I need to. Yeah. I think leave them on, wear, put clothing over it if you need to. But... <laughs> That's right. They'll, they'll disintegrate eventually. Right. It'll take in the bath. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, okay. So some backstory on, on the relationship. Um, you know, I, I've, I feel like I've had a, a pretty normal dating life up until this point had a few longer term relationships a few shorter term relationships um you know some serious some casual just it feels all of this feels pretty vanilla honestly um and 
then, you know, I, I, I've had it, part of therapy school is, you know, you, I've been in therapy school to be a therapist for a long time and you get supervision. And basically I've just been in pretty intensive therapy, you know, for, for five or six or seven years. And, you know, during my relationships, I, I realize that one thing that's really hard for me, probably hard for a lot of people is, is commitment. Just, you know, just the idea of committing to one person is it's, it's both like intellectually and emotionally difficult. It's hard to understand it intellectually and to do it kind of. Um, and then, you know, started dating this, this woman that I'm, I'm dating now and um, just have, have never felt commitment like this before. I, I haven't felt any, anywhere near it. it. Just feels something feels right. Something feels different. And she's just wonderful. And it just feels fitting and fun and, and compatible. And it, it, I, I heard you speak once about love and you know you were talking about kind of I, I believe I might butcher this but like love and attraction and compatibility and like those being mm. three kind of three very important pillars I guess and and it feels like it has all of those um kind of for the first time really to me and and it's that's wonderful and super fun. And it feels like, you know, recently the, the gloves have come off a little bit. I feel like we've made it past the, uh, at least the, the most intense part perhaps of the honeymoon phase. And now it's, you know, real and we're having difficult conversations and, you know, reconciling with, with our differences and negotiating and compromising and, and, you know, I mentioned this last time, I, the life that I project wanting is, is pretty prototypical for current, you know, uh, current people, at least in my perception of, of, you know, current Americans, I guess, of, of, you know, kids and monogamy and life, lifetime partnership. And yet I'm, a scientist and a therapist, you know, I'm, I'm a, I work as a scientist in my nine to five and then work as a therapist from, you know, five to seven. And in my science, as a scientist, I read sex at dawn. I watch your Ted talk and it's pretty compelling. I mean, it is, you know, the, like, I, I don't need to, to, to spit the evidence back at you, but it's, it's pretty compelling stuff. I mean, just from a sheer historical, biological, anthropological perspective, um, you know, it's, it's convincing. And then I'm a therapist and then, so, you know, I have couples, I have, you know, individuals talking about their relationships and the amount of cheating and the amount of problems that, I hear related to monogamy or the lack thereof are just, it's just like one of the main things I talk about. One of the main things that seems to cause suffering, you know? And so, so here I am at the, you know, nine months into a relationship thinking, you know, 
thinking I want monogamy and I, and I can go into my reasons why, or at least my, I can attempt to. And I just kind of want to understand from your vantage point, like what, almost what, what advice you think I might need, you know, or, or I, I hope I could just have kind of a thought partner in, in thinking this out or, you know, conversations that I, I need to have, or, um, I, I don't know. Cause I, I'm kind of split in that I'm feeling this commitment and love and amazingness. And I'm like, just my, my kind of rational brain is like, yeah, if people are cheating all the time. Yeah. The science checks out like, and so I just, I'm kind of in the midst of a conflict there. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's, it's, it's like you're drunk and you're, but you're smart enough to know you won't always be drunk. Yeah. And, you know, so your consciousness will change over time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a couple things come to mind. First of all, you use the word commitment. You say you feel commitment and you've never felt commitment like this before, but define commitment. What does that mean? It's a good question. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the cliffhanger. That is the cliffhanger. What do you mean by commitment? What are you committing to? What does that mean? What are the conditions? What are the clauses? What are the escape clauses, if there are any? What kind of contract is this that you're proposing to sign? Thank you for listening to the podcast. Tangentially speaking, I'm your host, Chris Ryan. I appreciate all of you. Uh, but I especially appreciate those of you who support the podcast by chipping in five bucks a month on Substack or 50 bucks a year, which works out to 420 something, I think. Um, ChrisRyan.substack.com. If you're a paying subscriber, you get things like the bonus Roma I just recorded a couple days ago that went out to paying subscribers. Uh, you get more music stuff. You get the book club, which we're reading right now, um, The Long Goodbye by Raymond Chandler. I've never read anything by him. Never really read any of that kind of genre. It's interesting. I'm really enjoying it. I, I don't know what we're going to talk about. It's not a, doesn't seem to be technically that, that complex of a, of a book, but it's a really compelling story. And um, yeah, there's all sorts of other bonus stuff. So anyway please consider supporting the podcast if you can afford it. If not, love you anyway. I'll catch you next time.